In the year 1874, the Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle asked the attention of all professing Christians regarding the subject of the Christian Sabbath, or the Lord's Day. Ryle said that, at a time like this, it becomes every Christian writer to cast in his might into the treasury of truth. Apparently, in Ryle's day, the Lord day, the Lord's day had fallen on hard times. Professing Christians were no longer setting apart the Lord's day as holy. And I fear, dear friends, that there is nothing new under the sun. And professing Christians in our day, just as in Ryle's day, are not setting apart the Lord's day as they ought. Now, there's much to say on this topic, and we will be considering some things from history, some quotes from those who have gone before us. It'll be a little history, a little application. We'll be looking to Scripture, and I trust you'll be able to follow along and there'll be edification, even if it's a bit of an adventure as we consider this topic of the Lord's Day. Specifically, I've titled this message, Super Bowl Sunday versus the Lord's Day. Perhaps there is no better time to reflect on this topic of the Lord's Day than this year. This past year, 2020, now in 2021, when many churches ceased to meet on the Lord's Day because of concerns about sickness. In the words of John Speed, When the coronavirus fell upon the United States, the evangelical gatekeepers advised the rest of us small fry to fall into our places in the parade away from the Lord's Day Assembly. The threat of disease and death, the wisdom of pundits, and the guiding hand of government seem to have more influence than the words of Scripture and the examples of church history. And if there's no better time as far as what's going on this past year, there's perhaps no more fitting day to speak on this topic than today. Today is what the world affectionately refers to as Super Bowl Sunday. A few years ago, a pastor named R. Scott Clark wrote an article entitled, It's a Super Lord's Day, not a Super Bowl Day. In this article, Clark describes the Super Bowl as a major cultural event. And he says this, he says, It seems likely that if the influence of the league, the NFL, and the game continue to grow, the day after the Super Bowl will become a national holiday to allow Americans to clean up and recover from their celebration. All the grocery ads this week were focused on selling goods to those preparing for Super Bowl parties. Never once to miss out on an opportunity to appropriate the culture. Some evangelical churches have begun hosting Super Bowl watch parties, though it is unclear just what good news such a church-sponsored event would announce. He goes on. In our time, in a misguided and even desperate attempt to remain relevant, as they say, many evangelicals have done what the ancient Christians refused to do synthesize the pagan circus in our day the super bowl with christianity by replacing the evening service with super bowl watch parties one congregation ostensibly for evangelical purposes 
is putting on a spectacular show with, quote, Christian, ce- Christian celebrities and production worthy of the Super Bowl itself. Typically, however, many Christians will simply skip the evening Lord's Day service to watch the game with their friends. Perhaps they dedicate the entire day to the Super Bowl. Most tragically, he says, many Christians no longer even have an evening service to attend. You see, the Super Bowl is just one example among many that our nation, and more to the point, the professing church has abandoned our forebears' practice of observing the Lord's Day. If previous years are any indication, nearly one-third of all Americans will watch the Super Bowl tonight. One-third. Many churches have compromised during the coronavirus scare and stopped meeting as God's people, even though God has called us to do that in his word. However, long before the coronavirus, churches in America have steadily been minimizing fellowship centered around God's word, especially on the Lord's Day. And even the world recognizes what has happened in church history, in the history of the world. In 2015, there was a film called Concussion about the NFL and and certain medical issues with concussions. But one character makes the following claim in the film. He says the NFL owns a day of the week, the same day the church used to own. Now it's theirs, end quote. The character in the film says that. And the sentiment of such a statement is clear. Americans love football more than the gathering of God's people to focus on the word of God. One writer, Ian Crouch, writing for the New New Yorker, points to this theme actually as the key component of this movie. He says, this might be the movie's most subversive message. Not that the NFL stood in the way of scientific research about the health of its players, but that it occupies a false place within the religious and patriotic beliefs of so many of its fans, whose Sabbath routines, he says, are timed perfectly so that Sunday service ends just in time for kickoff. Now, while this may be expected of the unregenerate, though it is not excusable, as we will see later, what do we say about the church's infatuation with football? Or to put it more broadly, entertainment. You see, when Charles Spurgeon ministered, the church met three times on Sunday. Three times to hear the word preached. In our day, even a second service is uncommon. But if we were to have an evening service every Sunday in this nation, there is no question which day would receive the lowest attendance. Super Bowl Sunday. We have come a long way as a church, and even as a nation. One more quote from Clark here. He says, Christians were notable in the first and second centuries, not for how much they conformed to the culture, nor for their cleverness in appropriating the circus as a means of evangelism, but for their relative distinction from the surrounding pagan culture. The early Christian treatise to Diogenetes Diogenes says that the Christians spoke the same language and wore the same clothes, but their lifestyle distinguished them from the pagans. The Christians were known by the pagans for their devotion for gathering together twice on the Lord's Day. 
In AD 112, the pagan governor Pliny the Younger received letters of complaint from pagans about the Christians who were hated because they did not participate in the pagan religious rituals and the pagan games. Now listen, I'm not trying to be nitpicky here. And if you're going to tune this out because I can't prove to you that watching football on the Lord's Day is a sin, I fear you're missing the point. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to show the sweeping change that has occurred in Christendom. And I'm trying to encourage us to do that which is most edifying and most consistent with the Bible and the good practices handed down to us. Now, though we may disagree with the specifics of various laws or applications of the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath, there is no doubt a strong record of Christians setting apart the Lord's Day from other days. In the year 789, Charlemagne the Great outlawed labor on Sunday. In the following century, King Alfred instituted a law that required double compensation to be made for thefts perpetrated on Sundays. And the influence of Calvinism and Puritanism led to the enactment of blue laws in America. These laws prohibited certain work and outlawed public entertainment on Sundays. Even Canada, folks, even Canada had a federal law called the Lord's Day Act until 1985. Now, whatever we may say about the exact details of these laws, there was clearly a desire to set apart one day for the Lord. In fact, even I believe the U.S. Constitution has a section that alludes to this where there is a certain time requirement before a bill has to be passed. But the Lord's Day does not count in that requirement. It is a day that is set apart from the others. Not too long ago in this country, if you drove around on Sunday, the majority of stores would be closed. Such is not the case today, unfortunately. What has happened? Why this infatuation with sports, with entertainment? Now, I don't believe that sports or entertainment are sinful in their essence. However, something is not right here. Something is off. Christians of previous generations, men like Ryle, urged the church to contend earnestly for the Lord's day. He said it is but a few steps from no Sabbath to no God. A.W. Pink charged that a failure to keep the Sabbath day holy is a sin of the first magnitude. B.B. Warfield wrote that the Lord's day is placed in our hands by the authority of the apostles of Christ under the undiminished sanction of of the eternal law of God. Where is this spirit today? Where is it? Speaking of sports, where are the Eric Littles of today? Listen to how one website describes Little's commitment to the Lord's Day. In 1924, Eric Little was given the honor of running for the 100 meters in the Olympics. But when he found out It was scheduled for Sunday. He refused to run, believing Sunday to be the Lord's day and a day of rest. Scotland criticized him for his decision, calling him a traitor. He was put into the 400-meter race, which happened later that week. He won the race and broke the world record at the time in 47.6 seconds, despite the fact that he was not expected to win it 
because he had not trained for that event. This spirit seems lost among us today. I do not doubt that there are some Christians in professional sports, though I suppose the number is far lower than those who would merely profess Christ. But where are the Eric Littles? Are there none like him anymore in our day? Today I have a bad feeling that the professing church of America might, on the other hand, be of the spirit of those who called Little a traitor rather than commending him for honoring the Lord's Day. How would Christians, professing Christians, who are fans of the team that is playing in the Super Bowl feel if their starting quarterback said, I'm not going to play? Obviously, that wouldn't work out because all the NFL games are on Sunday, but you get the point. How would we feel if someone took the stance of little and refused to participate on Sunday? The degree to which our entertainment and sports culture has infiltrated the church is not limited to Super Bowl Sunday. I want to tell you about the time where perhaps I felt more than ever that I could say zeal for your house consumes me. And it occurred in relation to this topic. We were visiting with a small congregation when a man came up to pray a congregational prayer for the body of Christ. He began by listing several names of whom I didn't know because I believe it was only our second time visiting this church. So I didn't know all the people there. I assumed these people were congregants in the church or perhaps people in the community that the church was reaching out to. To my shock, after listing these names, the man prayed something to the effect of this. Lord, please bless the ravens as they go into battle against the Texans today. That was the extent of the congregational prayer in a church with otherwise solid doctrinal foundations. Perhaps even more disturbing to me was the lack of correction by any of the leaders, several leaders in attendance, and also an audible amen from someone in the pews. Is this, I thought, the Church of Jesus Christ or the Church of the Baltimore Ravens? What has become of the old ways? What has become of them? Not everything from the past is good, but we do often need to stand by the roads, as Jeremiah said, and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Find rest. How fitting as we consider the day of rest. As you may know, the next line in that verse says this, but they said, we will not walk in it. We will not. That is the professing church, I'm afraid. They know the ancient the ways, they know the ancient paths, but they refuse to walk in them. Now, what is the biblical foundation for the Lord's day? The fourth commandment reads, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This is part of God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. Now, I am in agreement with the 1689 London Baptist Confession, which describes the Ten Commandments as synonymous with the law of universal obedience that God wrote on Adam's heart. This law, the Confession says, continues to be a perfect rule of righteousness. A perfect rule of righteousness. J.C. Ryle agreed with the Reformed Confession, and I therefore agree with him when he says that my own firm conviction 
is that the observance of the Sabbath day is part of the eternal law of God. It is not a mere temporary Jewish ordinance. It is not a man-made institution of priestcraft. It is not an unauthorized imposition of the church. It is one of the everlasting rules that God has revealed for the guidance of all mankind. It is a rule that many nations without the Bible have lost sight of and buried, like other rules, under the rubbish of superstition and heathenism. But it was a rule intended to be binding on all the children of Adam. And the 1689 affirms this in chapter 22, section 7, when it says, God particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, binding all men in all ages. You see, some Christians will say they have no problem causing unbelievers to work on Sunday, as long as they, the Christians, do not. As if the Ten Commandments were only for Christians. However, in the words of the Confession, the moral law doth forever bind all, Christian or non-Christian, to the obedience thereof. You see, God's law is not simply for Christians. God requires all people everywhere to obey his law, to submit to Jesus Christ and walk according to God's law. Now here briefly are five biblical reasons to help us remember that we ought to keep the Sabbath set apart or five biblical reasons why the Sabbath still applies. Number one, the Sabbath law is based on creation and the giving of this law is based on creation. The fact that God rested from his labor on the seventh day. Number two, the Sabbath law is part of the Ten Commandments. Ryle says, I find the law of the Sabbath side by side with the law about idolatry, murder, adultery, theft, and the like. I am utterly unable to believe that it was meant to be only of temporary obligation. So the Sabbath is based on creation. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and rested on the seventh. Number two, the Sabbath is part of the Ten Commandments, the very words of God that were put in the Ark of the Covenant. Number three, the Sabbath law was defended by the Old Testament prophets. I can't list them all now, but as we read earlier, Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah defends the Sabbath and calls on the people to uphold it, to set it apart as holy, promising them blessing if they will do so. Many of the prophets call out the, the lack of Sabbath adherence. Of course, we read Jeremiah says, And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. So Jeremiah calls on the people to go back to the ancient paths that God had commanded their fathers. And again, he says, Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. So the prophets defended the Sabbath day. Number four, the Sabbath law was not abolished by Christ. The Sabbath law was not abolished by Christ. Nowhere do we hear Christ saying the Sabbath day is abolished. Now he corrects erroneous applications of the Sabbath law, but he confirms it as we read as well earlier in a New Testament reading. In Mark he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a good thing. It was given to us for our good. Listen to Ryle here on this. He says, I turn to the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was upon the earth. 
I cannot discover that our Savior ever let up, let fall a word in discredit of any one of the Ten Commandments. So never do we hear Jesus discredit any one of the Ten Commandments. On the contrary, I find him declaring at the outset of his ministry that he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill. And in the context of that passage in Matthew, where he uses these words, Ralph says that it is clear he was not speaking of the ceremonial law, but the moral. I find him speaking of the Ten Commandments as a recognized standard of moral right and wrong when he says, Thou knowest the commandments, Mark 10:19. Thou knowest the commandments. I find him speaking 11 times on the subject of the Sabbath, but it is always to correct the superstitious additions that the Pharisees had made to the law of Moses about observing it and never to deny the holiness of the day. So he corrected, but he never denied the holiness of the day. Listen to this. He, Jesus, no more abolishes the Sabbath than a man destroys a house when he cleans off the moss or weeds from its roof. So just because Jesus corrected the errors does not mean he destroyed the Sabbath law. No more than a man cleaning off a roof destroys the roof because he is removing the excess. Above all, he says, I find our Savior taking for granted the continuance of the Sabbath when he foretells the destruction of Jerusalem. Pray ye, he says to the disciples, that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day, Matthew 24. I am utterly unable to believe when I see all this that our Lord did not mean the fourth commandment to be as binding on Christians as the other nine. And number five, the writing and practice of the apostles also confirmed that the Christian Sabbath was important and relevant. The early believers, it is written, gathered on the first day of the week, Acts 20, verse 7. Now, there is much more we could say here. And there also have been and there are those who disagree with the binding nature of the Ten Commandments. They view the Fourth Commandment specifically as no longer binding on Christians with moral force. For example, Martin Luther would be one of those in that camp. In Luther's large catechism, he says that this commandment, the Fourth Commandment, therefore, this commandment about the Sabbath, in its literal sense, does not apply to Christians, Luther says. Nevertheless, despite this, Luther still argues just a few paragraphs later that we Christians ought always to keep such a holy day and be occupied with nothing but holy things. You see, even those earnest Christians who, in my view, misunderstand the binding nature of God's law, they uphold the Christian Sabbath as relevant and beneficial and good. Now, How can we set apart this day? How can we, as the scripture says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy? The Westminster Catechism asks, how is the Sabbath or the Lord's day to be sanctified? The larger catechism asks that question. Now, say what you will about the men who wrote the catechism, the Westminster Catechism. But they took seriously the application of God's law word to all of life. The answer to this question reveals a sobriety regarding the Lord's Day that is lacking among many professing Christians today. The Westminster Divine said this, 
The Sabbath or the Lord's day is to be sanctified by unholy resting all the day, not only from such works as are at all times sinful, but even from such worldly employments and recreations as are on other days lawful. And making it our delight to spend the whole time, expect so, accept so much of it as is to be taken up in works of necessity and mercy in the public and private exercises of God's word, God's worship. And to that end, we are to prepare our hearts and with such foresight, diligence and moderation to dispose and seasonably dispatch our worldly business that we may be the more free and fit for the duties of that day. You see, these men took this seriously. They took seriously God's law, including the command to rest on one day out of seven. You see, the core of the fourth commandment is all about setting a pattern of work and then rest. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. You see, rather than making it a delight to spend our day in God's worship, we sometimes balk at the idea of setting apart one day in seven. Oftentimes we view God's commandments as hindrances to our joy. We think of his rules as burdensome. But that is not how we should view any of his commandments, including the command to rest one day in seven, to set one day apart as holy to the Lord. The writers of the larger catechism understood that we are prone to give too much time and attention to good, but not eternally significant things. Thus, they urge us to apply the fourth commandment by resting from worldly employments and recreation. Now, it may seem a strange thing for some to say that we need to rest from recreation and entertainment, whether that be sports or movies, social media, certain types of traveling. But those things, while proper, certainly in moderation, are prone to be used to excess. Having a day of rest from all those things is like having a built-in fast in our lives to help us regulate our spiritual lives and what we are consuming. You see, instead of viewing the Lord's Day as oppressive, we should consider it as freedom from having to do these other things. We get the blessing of having the main part of the day consist of fellowship, prayer, singing of God's word, Bible reading, theological discussion with other believers. Now, of course, I'm not going to get into specifics now. Does this mean you can't go for a walk or this or that? I leave that to you to decide. In fact, husbands and fathers are charged with this responsibility as the governor of the family in the Westminster Larger Catechism. They are charged with ordering the affairs of their home to see what would be most fitting and edifying to do on the Lord's Day. But before we simply say that anything goes, because the Bible does not give a list of specifics, and we don't want to be like the Pharisees who said you can't walk this far or do this exact thing, before we say, well, anything goes then, Remember the pith of the law. Remember the essence of this. To set a pattern of rest and make the day holy. Set it apart to God. And ask yourself this question. Are the decisions you make about how you spend the Lord's Day based on a thoughtful attempt to apply God's law to your life? Or are you simply doing whatever comes naturally? Are you simply doing what the culture does? 
And if Super Bowl Sunday is any indication of this, I fear many professing Christians are simply doing what the culture does in regards to the Lord's Day. You see, Christians have historically understood the Lord's Day to be a blessing, not a curse, not a burden. Jonathan Edwards said that the Christian Sabbath is one of the most precious enjoyments of the visible church, one of the most precious enjoyments. Nevertheless, it is true Men can make any law into a curse by twisting it. And Jesus, as we've mentioned, rebuked the improper application of God's law when he chastised the Pharisees for binding men's consciences where the word of God had not done so. Therefore, I want to be careful not to bind someone's conscience. I don't want to give a list of forbidden activities. However, the law remains and we must consider it. We are to rest and set it apart as holy. Now, the application of this law, though some may think the Westminster divines went further than they should, the application of the law is where the divines excelled. And I think the church would be best served by seeking to make the Lord's Day a delight and get as much out of it, out of our holy resting, as we possibly can. In 1645 in Scotland, the Directory of Public Worship gave some tips or recommendations or instruction for this. Here are a few things they said straight from 17th century Scotland. There should be a holy cessation of resting all that day, not only from sports and pastimes, but also from all worldly words and thoughts. The diet of that day is to be so ordered as that neither servants be unnecessarily detained from the public worship of God, nor any other person hindered from the sanctifying of the day. You see, they just they weren't just concerned about themselves but also those that worked for them. As we mentioned earlier, it's not just, well, I'm not working. I don't mind if other people do. They had a bigger Christian worldview that, as we've seen earlier in in American history even, the culture as a whole rested. And as Christians, we should be desirous that all people obey God's law. Last thing, the times between the solemn meetings of the congregation in public, so they were meeting more than once on Sunday, the time between those times should be spent in reading, meditation, repetition of sermons, especially by calling their families to an account of what they have heard and catechizing of them, holy conferences, prayer for a blessing upon the public ordinances, singing of psalms, visiting the sick, relieving the poor, and such like duties of piety, charity, and mercy, accounting the Sabbath a delight. You see, the Lord's Day is all about a pattern. It is to be the one day in seven which is distinct from the others. If you teach children, you know that when you're teaching um, children, uh, one of the things that you teach them very early on is how to distinguish something from something else. Right? There's a series of items that are presented, and the child must answer which one of these is different from the rest. It's a practice that is important to, to learn in life how to distinguish things from other things. Now, could our children do that with the days of the week? What is different about Sunday? Is it merely that there is a church service in the morning and then the rest of the day is no different than any other, perhaps given even more so to worldly entertainment? Is that all that the Lord's Day has become in our nation, a few hours in the morning? David Martin Lloyd-Jones said that he once heard a man say, that he had come to the conclusion that the Lord's day, like the Lord himself, 
was in danger of dying between two thieves. The two thieves being Saturday night and Monday morning. He said that increasingly, Saturday night was extended and extended and blended into Sunday. And then people started their Monday morning quite early on Sunday evening. Sunday becomes just a few hours during the morning. And then we think, well, that is enough now. We have been to church once. Lloyd-Jones says thus, or this man says thus, our Lord's day has been lost between two thieves, Saturday night and Monday morning. Has our Lord's day been lost between two thieves? Are we making full use of the blessing of having one day that can be set apart, that must be set apart from the others, allowing us to be especially focused on the things of the Lord? Are we, like those Amos preached about, is the professing church like those Amos preached about who said, when will the Sabbath be over? When will the Sabbath be over that we may offer wheat for sale? Have we gone even further and said, when will the service be over that we may watch football on the Lord's day? One of the greatest benefits to following God's word regarding resting on the Lord's day is the pattern we set for our children. Our generation, our generation is becoming more and more illiterate and restless. The thought of sitting and listening to a theological book for even one hour seems almost barbaric when we have the curative technology of Netflix to soothe our troubled souls. In this fast-paced, immediate gratification culture, one of the greatest blessings we can give our children is to train them to rest from certain recreations on the Lord's Day and instead spend time being instructed in God's word. This gives them the discipline to set a pattern for redeeming the time in their life, a pattern that will stay with them as they grow. Thus, today here, later this afternoon, as we've done in the past, rather than watching football, we will read the entire Gospel of Luke to consider what God's word has to say to us on this Lord's day. And young children can sit through those things if you train them. If you train them, and that is your duty as parents, to train your children to hear the word of God. Now, very briefly, what are some other practical ways that we might keep the Lord's Day holy in our times to set it apart? Now, I can offer a couple things, not as a standard, but simply as someone who's trying to be thoughtful on this topic. So on the Lord's Day, we may try to have a specific time of instruction in the Bible and catechism more than we normally do during the week. Of course, gather with the church. If the church doesn't have an evening service, invite Christians over in the afternoon for a time of fellowship and reading of God's word. Read the Bible, read entire books of the Bible on this Lord's Day, read an old sermon. Of course, conduct family worship as we ought to be doing every day. Discuss Bible doctrine with children. Play Bible trivia with children. Make this day set apart to God's word. Some things you might want to consider avoiding are television, not just football, other sports. Perhaps you want to watch a Christian program that specifically challenges you to look to God's word. Consider, though, avoiding going out to eat, causing others to work. Going to commercial recreation sites that require people to be employed on the Lord's Day. 
rest from homeschool. Take one day off from having to instruct your children in the other lessons, other subjects. Try to limit house chores beyond what is necessary. We could go on. There are other ideas, uh, might include acts of mercy as we read, reading the Bible at our nursing home, sharing the gospel in public. As far as getting prepared for Sunday, W. Robert Godfrey said that among the Dutch Reformed Christians, there used to be a lot of reflection on getting enough rest, preparing Saturday evening so that one comes prepared and reflective to the word of God, even peeling potatoes Saturday night in order to have less work to do on Sunday. He also mentioned that some Scottish believers even waited until Monday to wash the dishes. Now, I know that with young children, I have young children, the children can get restless, and I don't give these things as uh, some sort of law to bind you. The law is to set the day apart as holy and rest. And I encourage you to look at the practice of the church throughout history and where we have come as a nation. The point is for Christian families to take seriously the good law that God gave his people, set apart one day to rest. And what an opportunity we have to avail ourselves of the Lord's day, spending it in the fellowship and fellowship with other Christians as we gather together to edify one another. Now, I believe that fathers and mothers should be leading, fathers should be leading their families every single day in Bible instruction. And if the fathers won't, the mothers should. But even if every father only took one day out of the week, Sunday, and devoted it that day to the instruction of God's word to his children, even if he didn't talk about the Bible the other six days, which I believe, of course, he should, but even if he did this one day, what a difference that would make for our nation. If every father took one day and obeyed the law that is binding on all people and set it apart as holy and instructed his children. Now, as I close, let me just give a couple points of application. First, I recognize that some people's jobs require them to work on Sundays. Sometimes this can't be avoided in society. However, as a culture, we should be seeking to return to the pattern that used to prevail in this nation. Most places of employment were closed on Sunday. And as the gospel, I believe, continues to spread and we see revival again, hopefully in my lifetime, but at some point, I believe we will return to these old paths. Charles Spurgeon once said that he would, quote, do anything that is right to stop Sunday labor and sin. He said he would do anything, unless it was sinful, he said he would do anything to stop Sunday labor. That's how much he thought about this. He urged Christians to not, quote, unthinkingly keep your fellow creatures, your fellow human beings, at work, when they ought to be at rest. In fact, Spurgeon thought so much about this that he even urged Christians to think about how their behavior on Saturday nights might impact other people's ability to set apart the Lord's Day on Sunday. In one sermon, Spurgeon speaks of a fictional but paradigmatic laboring man. So this is a man that represents a reality that occurs This man who is too exhausted to fellowship on Sunday due to the habits of Christian shoppers late Saturday night. Listen to what Spurgeon says in this uh, bit of a parable, if you will. But, sir, there is one more stone in my path to taking Christianity seriously. So this this is the man that has to work Saturday night because Christians are shopping. 
But sir, there is one more stone in my path to taking Christianity seriously. Can you take that away? I am so engaged in business that it is utterly impossible for me to attend to the concerns of my soul. From Sunday morning to Saturday night, or rather till Sunday morning, it is work, work, work. And I scarcely seem to throw myself upon my bed before I have to rise in the morning and resume my tasks. You invite me to come to your place of worship on the Sabbath morning. And do you wish me to go there to sleep? You ask me to come and listen to the minister. If you fetched an angel from heaven and gave him Gabriel's trumpet with which he could wake the dead, then I might listen. But I require something almost as powerful as that to keep my poor eyelids open. I should be snoring while the saints were singing. Why should I come to mar your worship? What is the use of the minister telling me to take the yoke of Christ upon me because his yoke is easy and his burden is light? I know not whether Christ's yoke be easy, but I know that the yoke the so-called Christian population puts upon me is not easy. I have to toil as much as, as if I were a slave And the Israelites in the brick kilns of Egypt could hardly have sweated more fearfully under the taskmaster's lash than I do. Oh, sir, this is the great stone in the midst of my path. And it so impedes me that it is all in vain for you to talk to me of Christianity while this obstacle is in my way. Spurgeon then addressed his hearers after giving this somewhat comical but relevant uh, parable, if you will, of this man who cannot come to church because the Christian population places this yoke on him to work, 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 late into Saturday night. Spurgeon then addressed his hearers. He said this, I tell you all that this barrier is like the great stone that was laid at the door of the sepulcher of the dead Christ. Unless you try to remove it, where is the hope of getting these people under the sound of the word? It is for this reason that I came this evening to preach a sermon on behalf of the early closing movement. So the movement that that stores should be closed early Saturday night. I do think, he says, Christian people, that you ought to take this stone out of the path of those who are outside of the church. And to do so, you must put a stop to that evil but common custom of visiting shops and houses of business at a late hour. If you make a man work so many hours in the six days, really it is 12 days and six, for what is it better than that when he has two days labor crowded into every one? If you do this, how can you expect the Sabbath to be kept sacred by him? How can you expect the Sabbath to be kept sacred by him? Again, Spurgeon was not simply concerned, oh, Christians have to obey God's law, but we don't care about the unbelievers. No, he knew the psalmist said, as we said last week, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Spurgeon and others cared that not simply the Christian church, but the entire land obeyed God's law. law. And we should do the same. Now, if you have to work because your employer does not honor the Lord's day, or you work in a field of necessity, that's understandable. However, Let us seek to do all that we can to set apart the the Lord's day as holy. 
And if we are the business owner, why are we open on Sunday? At least we need to ask ourselves that question if we are open on Sunday. Of course, we know there are businesses that have chosen to be closed on Sunday and God has blessed them tremendously. Second point here. If you have not been faithful in seeking to apply the fourth commandment in your home, do not despair. If you have young children, it may take some time to set this pattern, but they will come to respect you for your consistency and earnestness. If your children are older, it may take even more time and patience to help set new patterns, but do not grow weary in well-doing. My uh, three older children already understand this pattern. When my four-year-old asked them, can we watch Zumbumafu? The other children kindly reminded him, no, today is the Lord's Day. It is encouraging to see them helping the younger child understand the pattern that has been set in our home. There is no need, children, to argue or complain about what we will be doing on the Lord's Day. The pattern should be set. And patterns are good things, especially those given by our Creator. Now, to conclude here, back to J.C. Ryle, whom I quoted in the beginning. He said that as a minister of Christ, a father of a family, and a lover of my country, I feel bound, I feel bound to plead in behalf of the old English Sunday. My sentence is, is emphatically expressed in the words of Scripture. Let us keep it holy. My advice to all Christians is to contend earnestly for the whole day, the whole day, against all enemies, both without and within the church. It is worth a struggle, he says. J.C. Ryle pleaded on behalf of the old English Sunday. Even in his days, the old paths were being forgotten. And today I plead on behalf of the old American Sunday, if you will. I label, I called this sermon Super Bowl Sunday versus the Lord's Day. Super Bowl Sunday versus the Lord's Day. But I do not doubt the victor. I do not doubt who the victor of this contest will be. The Lord will be victorious. Listen here as I... We wrap up to to Clark again. He says, as the annual Super Bowl hype is upon us once again, Christians ought to remember the announcement of the angels. He is not here, but has risen. That happened on a Sunday, the first day of the week, which he claimed by his royal authority as his own. It is not the NFL's. By his resurrection, our Lord reordered the calendar. Christians no longer observe the old Jewish Sabbath, which belong to the types and shadows, we observe the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, to commune with our risen Lord as his people, to hear the gospel, and to receive the holy sacraments. On it, we rest, worship, and do works of mercy for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We have no time for the Super Bowl. Our Lord Jesus is super above, beyond, transcendent over every cultural event, no matter how popular or compelling it might seem at the moment. On the last day, our Lord Jesus will return and all such cultural events shall become like dust in the wind. Everything that our culture told us was so very important will be wiped away in the judgment and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. 
Then we'll be face to face with our Lord, who was raised on the first day of the week, that he, the day he claimed as his own, the Lord's day. Now I'll go one step further, or perhaps before, if you will, what Clark says. As the gospel spreads and the Lord grants revival, I believe the Christian Sabbath will again regain its place in the world. And what the Genevan reformers saw as a prophecy focused on when, quote, the church shall be renewed, we read in Isaiah 66, 23, and from month to month and from Sabbath to Sabbath shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. Just as the gladiatorial games in Rome were abolished, I believe in large part due to the witness of Christians, I believe the Super Bowl will become irrelevant. And long after the Super Bowl is irrelevant, the Christian Sabbath will remain. It may seem as if the Christian Sabbath is the underdog in this contest with the amount of infatuation with the Super Bowl. But the Super Bowl stands no chance, my friends. Christ is king and his day will reign supreme. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your law. We know it is good. It is for our good. It is for your glory. We pray, Lord, that we would care about your law, that we would care about it being kept. Uh, We would shed streams of tears when we look around and see that your law is not kept. And we would preach the gospel, knowing that uh, we cannot be justified by keeping the law. We cannot keep the law in our own power. But one of the great blessings of the gospel is that it restores to us the ability to keep your law by the Spirit's power. You give a new heart. You write your law upon our hearts. I pray, Lord, that we would, as those who have gone before us, uphold your law, preach it boldly, live it out, not because we can earn our way to you, but because you have told us what is good. You have told us how we are to conduct ourselves. You have given the Sabbath. You have given your law for us, for our good, that we may know how to conduct ourselves in this world that you have made. You know the world better than we do. Help us to be humble enough to uh, accept that and obey your law. We pray that this day would be a day set apart to you. We pray for a revival and reformation in our land, that the church would be bold and stand on the authority of your word, and we would set apart this day to you, and the world would look and see, as they saw the Christians in the first and second century, that we are different, that we are not like the culture, that we set patterns based on your law, not on cultural trends. We pray you would bless this word to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.